March of 2019, my husband ended up passing away and it's just been a very long, a very painful, um, but also beautiful and profound journey ever since. You're listening to Disrupting Balance, the podcast, where we are busting myths and breaking balance. Here's stories from women who are pushing boundaries to navigate the decisions and changes that come with work, womanhood, and winning. I'm your host, Hanifa Barnes, speaker, decision strategist, and master imbalancepreneur. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Disrupting Balance podcast. Thank you so much for joining us in this big myth season. Today's guest is Emily P. Bingham. She's a fitness professional, a mother of two, and as of March 2019, she became a widow when her husband and partner from the age of 18 passed away from a rare cancer on her journey to healing. Emily had to find a way to navigate the emotions the new identities, all while raising her two young children and helping them cope. Along the way, she also dispelled several myths, one about society's obsession with perpetual happiness, others that would have you believe that death is all about sadness and guilt, and she soon discovered the power of embracing her own style of coping through fitness and intentional movement. And what did she do about it? She created a mission and a movement with Move Through. Move Through helps others heal through movement and helps them confront their own feelings around loss and grief as opposed to trying to escape it. This movement has also helped Emily heal and find a new space and new identity where she can embrace all of who she is while also continuing the legacy of her husband. To find out how to connect with Emily and learn more about Move Through, check the show notes. Hello, everybody. Today in the Disrupting Balance guest chair, we have Emily Bingham. Emily, how are you today? I'm really good. Thank you so much for having me here today. Very excited. Yeah, I am so glad. And we're going to jump right in because as I told you, I've been scoping out your IG page for probably since I started Disrupting Balance and I knew I had to have you on the show. So the first thing we're going to start with is what is your story? (laughs) All right. So I am a mom of two. I'm also a fitness instructor and a widow as of about a year and a half ago. My widowhood has also launched me into the area of entrepreneurship, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, But my story really goes back to when my late husband, Ian, and I met. Ian, yeah, Ian and I, my late husband, Ian, and I met when I was 18 years old in college. And um, we dated. It was great. We planned our future together. Um, While we were kind of on our different trajectories, we 
we took a took a little break at the time, but he discovered that there he had an eye tumor that was actually cancer. It was called uveal melanoma, and there's about two thousand cases that occur annually. Um, it's a very rare form of melanoma. So, um, you know, we were young, twenty three at the time, and we said we're going to beat this. It's going to be fine. So we ended up getting back together. I feel like the cancer was kind of a weird silver lining to us coming back together because I think it put a lot into perspective for him, but we proceeded to get married, um, have kids and life was great. We were living out in San Diego. Um, I had my first child, um, Izzy. She was, two at the time. And I was also pregnant with my second. And then one afternoon when we were at the beach, we got a call from an ER doctor because Ian had been experiencing back pain. And we found out that he, his cancer had basically metastasized. There was tumors all over his spine, tumors in his abdomen, um, kind of like all over the place. Um, And so from that day on, it was like in August 2017, our lives just took a dramatic turn because the odds of survival for uveal melanoma after it metastasizes are really bad. Um, There is no treatment for it, but we decided, you know, we're young. We're going to be the ones who fight this and beat this. And so after that, we spent about we moved out to Colorado to be with my parents to help us with um, my my child, Isabel. And then I ended up having my son, Theodore, just a few months later. Uh, so we needed help while Ian and I traveled back and forth to do experimental treatments for about 15 months. And that process was extremely trying. It's kind of a lot like what we've been dealing with. COVID-19 and the pandemic, you know, never really knowing what your future is going to look like, Um, living in between one treatment to the next, just hoping that you get one good test result. Um, So we stayed hopeful for as long as we could. And then in March of 2019, right after my um, son Theo turned one. My husband ended up passing away back in his hometown of Hawaii. Um, it was a beautiful passing for, you know, how death could look. Um, and since then, it's been about 15 months since his his passing, and it's just been a very long, a very painful, um, but also beautiful and profound journey ever since. Long, beautiful, and painful, three very interesting descriptors for this journey. So let's talk about the myths around dealing and managing death and grief. Because, you know, the assumption is, you know, people go through these same types of steps in the same way and have similar experiences whether they're upset at the person who's passed or whether they're mad at God. Tell me about your experiences and the myths around death. Sure. So um, 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of different myths around death and it it's hard because it really does kind of a disservice to some, you know, people who are grieving because essentially there is no right or wrong way to grieve. There is no rule book. All of this is just uncharted territory because each loss is so unique and how each person responds to that loss is also just so different based on a ton of different factors. Um, you know, socioeconomic factors, your level of support, uh, just how you've been raised and the experiences that you've had growing up in terms of resilience um, or building resilience. But um, for me, I had a long period of anticipatory grief leading up to um, Ian's death. It was about 15 months worth of it. And at the time, I didn't even know that that term existed, but it was just that navigating um, uncertainty and living in limbo and not knowing if the next year I would have my husband and the father of my children around. So in a way, that was that was hard in itself, but... I do feel like it allowed me to come to peace and to terms with the loss a lot quicker for someone who might go through, you know, lose someone to an accident or to a sudden death. So, but whether or not like we were prepared or not, there was still a level of shock that mm. I had to kind of go through and work through. I felt numb for about six months and just kind of felt like I was living in this surreal world. Um, it wasn't until about like six months after Ian died that I actually started to feel anything. And I, and I would question myself. I think that's one of the myths is that you need to be sad and crying all the time. And for me, I was actually like, I felt okay. And then I would feel guilty for feeling that way. Um, but it was just, those were my feelings. I don't, and you know, as I dig more into grief, like that shock is literally our body just protecting us from all of the pain that it's about to go through. So, um, so yeah, once the fog started to lift, I then started to feel not sadness. I started to feel anger. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I was really mad, uh, that, I wasn't really mad at like God or a higher power. Um, I was more just mad at my situation. I didn't want to be a single mom. I never wanted to have kids by myself or raise them on my own. I didn't want to be head of household. I didn't want to have to do everything all over again. Hmm. And at times I might've taken that out on Ian. um, But really it was more just this resentment towards my whole situation and sometimes at my kids, which I really did not like and had to work through. Um, and then, you know, on top of anger came a lot of anxiety, just trying to figure out how to deal with this emotional overwhelm and all of the logistics that go into having your partner and then losing them and having to take on all of the responsibilities that they have to do. So another myth I think is that you miss the person, you grieve the loss of this person. But for me, I much more grieved the role of him as my husband and all of these other little areas of my life. Um, And then, yeah, after about like a year, I'd say right around his first death anniversary this past March, I finally started to feel like some real intense sadness. Yeah, come out in a lot of different ways. In grieving the role of Ian, tell me about one or two things that you had to either learn or unlearn 
for yourself as a result? So I definitely had to learn just like the little logistical things around the house, like the finances, um, managing all of the different accounts and paying the bills. I mean, Ian really did a lot of that and I really took care of the kids. Um, I'm trying to think of anything that I've had to, to unlearn, but I've also had to learn how to just give myself grace because there is literally one less human here to help carry all of the weight. Um, so yeah, just trying to not have these high expectations for myself, recognizing that I'm only capable of what I can, can do. And so in one of your posts, you say something so beautifully and it's quite profound. And you talk about society's obsession with this perpetual happiness and how it's okay to embrace this other side of being human. And I love that because for me, it's, it also exemplifies disrupting balance for me because people are constantly seeking some state of balance or equilibrium that is non-existent. And they never consider the fact that being in the imbalance or that other side of the human experience is absolutely okay. Right. Mm -hmm. So what was that turning point for you in realizing or understanding that the idea of perpetual happiness is just an idea or dare I say a myth? What was that point for you? So it was actually pretty early on. And the reason why is because I like dug into grief right away. (laughs) There's this like expectation that you should be over it like faster that you, and that you need to let go. Um, I remember a couple of my family members challenged me wanting to talk about Ian to my children because they were worried about that stirring up, um, too many like sad emotions about him. Um, and that, you know, I, I said, no, like we need, we need to keep his memory alive, but there's this expectation that we need to like push all of these feelings aside, all of these memories, all of this quote unquote darkness, because we need to move on with our lives, get over it. And a turning point for me was when I watched a Ted talk by Nora McGurney, who is a widow who's um, she's an author. She's written several books and has started a nonprofit. Um, She has a group called the hot young widows club, but uh, she talks about how, no, you don't move on, you move forward and you can still find ways of, you know, being with your pain, feeling your sadness, but also living a very normal, healthy, joyful life without these false constraints and expectations. Mm-hmm. So March of last year, this all happened. You have six months where you feel this numbness. And then after that, I guess you start to begin to kind of release, unravel, or just be in tune with your emotions and your feelings. So sounds like you were going through these phases in this process. Tell me about how you define those phases for yourself and what they look like. The phases for me were about six months of shock. It felt like numbness. I could not feel really anything. I was really like foggy brained. Um, Life did not feel real. 
it was like I was just kind of going through the motions, even though I knew, you know, Ian's death had been imminent for 15 months. It still just, I needed, my body and my mind needed time to register um, what had just really happened mm-hmm. and digest this new reality that I was in. So after six months, that fog started to lift and I felt a sense of anger because I was like, this isn't fair. I don't want to, to, to do this. Um, and I was angry at my situation. After anger came a lot of feelings of anxiety, just being overwhelmed with my emotions, with um, with a lot of the anger, mm-hmm. uh, with ha- the realities of having to single parent and be head of household, um, trying to figure out like what I was going to do for us financially, um, finding childcare because, you know, for me to step foot outside of my house now, I needed like a sitter or someone here. My kids were yeah. both really young. Yeah. Um, and then there's this feeling of being stuck because you're just, there's just so much that you, you feel ultimately powerless. Like you're paralyzed. because You don't even know how to put one foot in front of the other. So that, that set in like, you know, around in that six to nine month range. And then um, after about a year, which I think I've been able to um, manage the logistics and understand my emotions a little bit more to a point where now I'm feeling sadness. And I, right now I kind of sadness comes and goes for me. Guilt comes up a lot because, you know, I'm exploring new relationships or mm-hmm. I'm excited and happy and I'm like, I shouldn't be feeling this way. But it's like, why? Like, you've already been through so much, Emily. Like, (laughs) guilt is one of those feelings that I really have to, like, work and challenge and say, no, like, this isn't right. Um, It's okay for me to feel joy, too, and to move forward with my life. (laughs) Yeah, I I hear that. And women in general, I, I, I would presume, we tend to adapt this feeling of guilt in many situations, and especially in your case, as you try to shift through your process and your grief and the phases. So in thinking about guilt, stepping into a new phase of your life at some point, what are the strategies you have taken or will take to make sure that they don't become a part of your identity? So for guilt, one exercise that I really enjoy is taking those feelings or those thoughts that are driving my feelings of guilt and writing them down, or at least just like finding some stillness to be with them. And then talking to my husband about it, telling him like how I feel and then trying to think of the way that he would respond. Wow. Because most of them are about him, you know? Um, But if I really sat with it and Ian were to tell me, he'd say, Emily, no, I want you to find love again. Or I think what you're doing right now um, with this new business is so exciting and so amazing. And it, I, you, you know, it's cause I've, I've had feelings of guilt for feeling like none of this would happen if Ian hadn't died. Yeah. And that's a hard one. You know, yeah. it's like, there's no trade off. But at the same time, we can't control what happens to us in life. So we have to find some way to move forward um, or you just stay stuck kind of in the rubble of your world just falling apart. 
And I refuse to do that. Yeah. Good for you. And so I, I'm just thinking about all of the levels of emotion involved with what you're talking about right now. But what about the kids and making sure they're okay? What do you do or how do you talk to them about it? How do you help them process? How do you help them always know that Ian is dad and, you know, all all of that part of the process? How do you do it? Um, So we've been extremely open with um, Izzy, uh, the older one. She's four right now. Since Ian's cancer metastasized, really, um, we just said, you know, daddy was sick. He has a disease called cancer, which is not like other illnesses. You know, you can't spread it. It's not like a cold. Um, There's no reason really why he got it. I mean, we have some guesses, but he just, I kind of think, tell her that he got bad luck, unfortunately. Um, And I also try to emphasize that she had nothing to do with him dying because kids take on that role a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. they're somehow responsible. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, she, like one of the hardest conversations was having her actually say goodbye to Ian for the last time. And then trying to somehow communicate that he will still be there in our heart. We're not particularly religious, but we are more spiritual. So Mm -hmm. the way that I talked to her about him when she starts to miss her dad because um, he comes up often, you know, like she'll say, well, why does Charlotte or so-and-so have her daddy? And I don't. Mm-hmm. And she'll say, I miss daddy. And, and that that's really hard. So I try, when she brings it up, I do try to talk to her about it. And I say, remember, Izzy, your daddy, even though he's not here with us physically, we can stay connected to him by this invisible string of love. And this is based off of a children's book called The Invisible String. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And just wherever you go, we are all connected by the invisible string of love. So as long as we have love in our heart for that person, then he will never go away. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I definitely, that's kind of how the narrative that we've been playing out, just being super matter of fact and trying to give her as a tangible as a connection as I can um, to him in ways that are authentic for me as well as make sense for her. And did you have to deal at all with, is he acting out at all? And if so, how did you manage that? Definitely. Um, so like right after Ian died, she slept in bed with me for three months. Um, I think there was a lot of fear that I would leave too. Um, we also did, we did some play therapy just, Mm -hmm. and that was mainly more to see if there was anything really coming up. I mean, she was three years old when he died. So it was kind of a fine line between like, I don't want to create more trauma for her, but I also want to have the tools that I need to be able to talk to her if she has questions. Um, for Izzy, I noticed that a lot of her grief has come out in the form of anger and mm-hmm. being really physical. So I, I look for ways because she can't verbally express her emotions yeah. to physically release. 
So we punch pillows. I tell her we can scream into a pillow. And I'm as soon as she's old enough, I want to get her into jujitsu to like help her release yeah. some of that that comes up. And I try to say, you know, Izzy, if you are sad, you can cry. Like it's okay. Feel what you're feeling. And I, I really try to encourage her to to access that part. That sounds like also what you do with Move Through. It's all about helping people deal with grief through movement, as I understand it. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about how you came to the idea of Move Through and what that is. I started laying the groundwork for Move Through at around that six-month mark as well. Um, when the fog started to lift, because I, that's when I was like, wow, I have to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. <laughs> um, so I hired a goal coach to help me kind of sift through everything. And I kind of wrote down, you know, what my values were, mm-hmm. what was important to me, um, nailed those down. And then I also looked at what brought me joy. And what I found is that movement brings me joy, inspiration is, you know, I, you need inspiration through all the hardships in life to just keep you going and putting one foot in front of the other. And I also found that part of my healing has been, and being able to cope with grief has been one, a lot of physical activity. I've, I have done traditional talk therapy, which has helped me, but there were times where I wasn't able to, um, really vocalize my, emotions. I didn't know what I was feeling. I just knew that I wasn't feeling good. Uh, so it was, it was hard for me to, to verbalize my feelings and emotions. But what I found is that when I went to, if I was like really anxious or something, I would jump on a spin bike and I would feel an immediate sense of release. Or if I felt anger, I could go and, you know, throw some punches during like a some sort of a kickboxing or like a hit class, um, Mm -hmm. doing burpees, pounding the floor. And then if I just needed like this sense of like grounding, if I felt, you know, like this was just so unreal, like I can't believe this is my life, go to yoga and just like breathe and be with those thoughts. And although I couldn't necessarily pinpoint every emotion at the time, I would leave with a sense of like calm and just feeling better and, feeling like I would be, I had some sort of ounce of control over this new reality that I was living. Because when you die, you realize that you don't, I mean, when someone dies, you realize that you really don't have a lot of control and the world can feel very scary and mm. unpredictable. Fitness kind of gave me that, that sense of control. It also gave me an amazing community to lean on yeah. without having to like talk to a bunch of people about how you're feeling. It's just, they show up and everyone's there yeah. high-fiving you, you know, giving you hugs. Like it's just this unspoken um, unity and connection that you have. So yeah, move through really came from just my desire to help others heal through movement. And I, I love moving my body. I mean, that's what I do for a profession. And then somehow using this element of inspiration to try to show people that they can do this too. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it's almost like you're helping others, but it's also a form of therapy for you. Yes. Right? In some sense. Yeah, because I'm wondering 
during some of your work, do you ever experience triggers with yourself? You know, and when you do, do you do some of the physical practices that you've talked about? Or are there other more personal experiences, whether it's just sitting with yourself or writing or talking to Ian, whatever you are, you know, what are those practices that you do if you have those triggers during the time you're helping others? Yeah. So when I'm helping others, it's kind of, I mean, the time that I'm really like interfacing with clients has been different now with COVID, but when I, I've only done a couple of classes, I launched in January of 2020. Um, and so I had a couple of actual move through workouts where we were physically together and it was amazing because no one had to talk about their grief, but we all knew that we had gone through some horrific loss of some capacity and just not having to talk about it, but feeling that connection was amazing. I Mm -hmm. honestly, it's an intention-based workout. So it's layering movement with intention to help people truly confront and own their feelings as opposed to Mm -hmm. escape them. Because exercise Mm -hmm. can use as a distraction from the pain, um, you know, just as an escape, but this is really like, no, like let's, let's take your anger and let's embody it. So I'll write my prompts kind of ahead of time. And that's when the emotions come up for me. Writing has a way of forcing me to sit still and to think about my emotions and process them into written word. And I almost always end up crying. I ended up crying, preparing for this podcast. I was writing. I mean, that's just, but then when I actually like execute, when I talk, when I'm leading a, a, a move through workout, it doesn't come up for me quite as much, but in terms of just general coping, I, I typically can feel anxiety building and it comes out in the form of like irritability and like just feeling kind of like this suffocating feeling. And I'm like, Oh, I have some unprocessed emotion and feeling that yeah. I can go deal with. Yeah. And just depending on how that feels and what, you know, I'm a mom and what I can do at the time, like it's either like, I'm just going to take a mommy time out and go in my room and breathe for a little bit. Yeah. Or I can try to get a sitter and actually go for a, a workout. Like in the beginning, I was like, mom, I need you here right now. I need to go work out because that was the only tool I had. But over time I've, I've learned, you know, breathing exercises or to just kind of hold me over. And then it's like, all right, I'm going to schedule like a three hour hike mm-hmm. where I really need to like work through what's kind of going on in my body and in my mind. Yeah, that, that is good. I mean, to know yourself, I think is the key to pushing through a lot of different phases of life, whether it's grief, joy, whatever that is. So that is a beautiful, beautiful thing. In going through your experience of dating Ian, marrying Ian, becoming the mother of your children, and then caregiver, you move through various identities at a very young age, and you're still relatively young now. So I want to know, what is your identity today? How would you define yourself today? Now, I definitely have several identities. I mean, I think first and foremost, I'm a mom. I am an entrepreneur. I will always 
have love for my husband in some capacity. Um, and I don't think I need a role to necessarily define that. Um, I also see myself as a healer or someone to provide that inspiration and hope to others, a storyteller, someone who's always seeking the silver lining. Um, but I think, yeah, I, I have many roles right now, whereas before, I think a lot of my roles were about supporting others. And that was just the natural progression of how events unfolded in my life. And, you know, when I was 18, I didn't really know any better. I fell in love and I knew that I wanted to get married and have kids and create that story. And I did. But when it all fell apart, I was kind of like, is that story going to define my happiness and then not have that, like, ruin it? So I had to dig deep and really look at who I was. Um, And I'm still figuring that out. Um, But I think it's a constant evolution of just asking myself these questions, like, who am I? What is important to me? What are my values? And my values can change. They've changed in the last, you know, six months already. Um, But it's just that constant checking in with myself and making sure that I'm living in alignment Mm -hmm. with what's important. I think that's one of the biggest lessons that grief can and loss can teach us is that like we have to be adaptable and fluid. Otherwise you do, you get stuck in when life doesn't go the way that it's planned, then like, what, what are you, what are you going to do with it? You know, you can stay in that identity and dwell in it, or you can build something new. I am Emily Bingham, and I am disrupting balance by changing the way we cope, but I'm going to cross that out, live with grief and loss. Thank you for listening to Disrupting Balance. To learn more about how I'm disrupting balance, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest at Disrupting Balance. You can also check out my website at www.disruptingbalance.com to get podcast updates and news from the Balance Disruptor community about how you can become your very own master in balancepreneur. Talk soon.